0: This is The Ruminant Podcast. I'm Jordan Marr. TheRuminant.ca is a website dedicated to sharing good ideas for farmers and gardeners. At The Ruminant, you can find past episodes of this podcast, essays I've written, a few book reviews, and a whole lot of photo-based blog posts, some of which were made by me and some of which were submitted by you. So I hope you'll check it out, TheRuminant.ca. And if you want to get a hold of me, editor at TheRuminant.ca or at RuminantBlog on Twitter. Okay. Let's do this show. Hey folks, today's episode features my conversation with Forrest Pritchard, who is a writer of best-selling farm books and who recently wrote a column for the Huffington Post that was pretty thoughtful uh, in its uh, treatment of the subject of GMOs. And so I invited Forrest to come on and chat with me, and he did. And I think you'll enjoy the interview, and I think you should read the article, which will be uh, mentioned in the conversation and linked from theruminant.ca. So before we get to that, I just want to remind you that I would love to hear from you if you have anything to contribute to the podcast. I have been getting a few submissions on the question of what you do in the winter if it's not farming, uh, and if you need to make ends meet. Uh, I think it'd be great to give other farmers a lot of ideas of possibilities out there. I've had a couple of good submissions, but so far neither of those two submissions have resulted in a recording. Oh, uh, one submitter didn't wanna record and one I'm still waiting to hear back from. So if you'd like to contribute to that episode, uh, I'd love to hear from you. But here's a new question. I would like to do an episode on farming with children, as in the challenge of running a farm and also raising, I guess, young children at the same time. So. If you have been there or are currently there and you've gained some insights, some tips for other uh, new parents who are farmers, I'd love to hear from you. In either case, uh, the winter work episode I'm working on or this farming with kids episode or any other insights that you'd like to share, anything you think other farmers would want to know about, uh, get a hold of me, editor at the ruminant.ca. You can text me 250-767-6636 and just tell me to get a hold of you, or you can call my Skype number and leave a message, 310-734-8426. Okay, here is my interview with Forrest Pritchard. Talk to you at the end. Forrest Pritchard, thanks a lot for coming on The Room in a Podcast. Of course. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Forrest, I invited you on the show today because of a really uh, thought-provoking article you wrote for the Huffington Post back on September 22nd. The title of the article is, We've Missed the Entire Point About GMO Food. And uh, I thought I would just start with uh, a pretty almost exact quote, slightly paraphrase of, um, of something from the article. Uh, so here, here we go. Love GMOs or hate them. When it comes to the bigger picture, it doesn't especially matter. The companies that produce GMO seeds and their affiliate herbicides have already won. Can you explain what you mean by that, Forrest?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, our food landscape... Um, you know whether we're um, you know driving through town right now or, or having a sandwich or, or however we're listening to this podcast um, uh, is dominated by um, GMO food and uh, genetically modified organisms and um, and you know just a few ingredients. Um, and that's neither, you know, trying to have a dog in this fight one way or the other. I think is largely irrelevant um, to a certain, you know, to, to a boots to a boots on the ground kind of thing, because it's already here. It is. It's, it's what we it's what we do. Um, it's how we eat. And in the article, I make the point whether you're at ground zero having a sandwich or you know at a, at the drive-through or you're thirty-five thousand feet in the air, we can see it either way. You know, we can kind of hold it in our hands and, and eat it. And then we can get way up and look down and, and see, you know, two, three hundred thousand acres of it all across the country. That's just kind of a, a, a stepping off point. You know, we can get down into, you know, how we want to eat, how we prefer farming to be, you know, how we prefer, um, you know, our food choices to be available. Uh, but the fact is is that's, you know, 97 percent, 96, 97 percent of our food landscape um, in, in in 2015, that's just
0: the way it is. Yeah, you 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 even you suggest us this, uh, this statistic that nine out of every ten bites that we collectively eat uh, are created with GMO ingredients.
1: Yeah, that's my understanding. Um, that's kind of hard to for maybe for a consumer to say. Well, wait a minute. I'm not eating bags of Fritos and uh, you know eating tacos uh, all day. What, what do I eat that's made out of corn? Well, um, if you eat any chicken, any dairy. Uh, any pork, any beef, um, any soy products, uh, any uh, uh, conventional vegetable oils of any kind, which are in almost every, you know, food, uh, processed food, bread, uh, all those things, um, you are eating GMO products. So yeah, it's 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 almost it's almost impossible without growing your own food. You know, shopping probably almost exclusively at farmers markets um, to not be. Uh, not be having a GMO food as a huge component of our diets you know beyond the the normal conversation of you know whether it's safe to eat or not safe to eat um, well that's a whole other conversation um, but I guess the point i'm making is is it's just it's just that ubiquitous um, you know whether we acknowledge it or not.
0: Well, Forrest. Before we get on to talking about some of the concerns you think we should be focusing on with GMOs, I think it's probably important mm-hmm. to um, situate the conversation uh, in the context of your history, because I think it's relevant here. Could you sure. could you take me back? Yeah. I, I guess I'll suggest you start around the mid '90s in terms of. Uh, I think yeah. that's when you got heavily involved in your in your multi generational farm, and just and just kind of sure, take sure. take take me through the last twenty years. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think you know in a. So I'm a seven generation farmer and, and in a, you know, cultural landscape where only one and a half, two percent of, of, of the population is directly involved in our food production. It's really easy to kind of talk past each other. Um, so I think this is a great, great way to kind of bend, bend that back into, um, in, into a place where we can all kind of get together. So in 1995, 96, I graduated from, uh, high or from college rather, and I wanted to take over my, my granddad's farm. He was a successful farmer for 60 years, all through the 20th century. And he was growing, uh, he was a very progressive farmer uh, at the time, which progressive progressive farmer in the 50s, 60s, 70s meant uh, a heavy chemical use, confinement, uh, feedlots, heavy reliance on machinery, um, which is all well and good um, for his his time frame. And I kind of thought that if I just did what he had successfully accomplished, um, which was you know, show up on time, work hard, get your hands dirty, uh, you know, work six and a half days a week. That's kind of the American dream um, that you can, you can make a good go of it. So that very first year, being you know, graduating uh, from college with an English degree and a geology degree, I had no illusion that I really knew what I was doing in farming. Um, so to that end, I collaborated with a local farmer um, who was had about 20 years of experience growing uh, corn, soybean, things of this nature, and uh, we took half of our cattle farm, about 250 acres out of 500, and sprayed it off, uh, killed it off with herbicide. Um, And to put this in historical context, this was more or less the very first year where GMO Crops and their affiliate herbicides were really being pushed hard onto the market and were uh, being widely adopted by farmers all across the country. Uh, you know, under the pretense of uh, these things being you know, valuable agricultural tools, uh, you know, kill off all competing vegetation and have robust you know, crops of corn and soybeans. You know, it sounds good, right? Um, so we did that, and uh, at the end of the year, we harvested five tractor-trailer loads of corn, and, you know, it was kind of like a Scrooge McDuck scene where, you know, uh, Guys jumping off the diving board into a into a uh, ocean of gold, right? Uh, five tractor loads of corn is a substantial uh, amount amount of grain, and you know it was our you know we never planned to get rich off of it, but we planned to make a profit like any reasonable reasonable business, and uh, we thought reasonably we'd uh, make a profit of about ten thousand dollars enough to pay our taxes, uh, our land taxes, some of our bills, things like that. Um, and on the low end, probably $8,000. And when all the accounting was done between the price of the seeds, the herbicide, uh, the diesel fuel for the tractors, crop insurance, all these things, our net profit, well, I should, I should say the farmer came and he said, well, the profit came out to 1816 And I was devastated thinking that he meant $1,800. 1800 $1,816, but what he really meant was it came out to $18.16. <laughs> that was the profit on your crop. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, you know, I, come on. Um, that, that, that just raised so many specters of doubt for me, and I was confused. Crushed, I was deflated. Uh, but most I was confused, where, you know, somebody, it's like, you know, it's, it's metric tons. It's railroad cars of corn uh, going off of our farm, Uh, who was making a profit off of it. It it wasn't just, you know, disappearing into thin air. Um, And it turns out it was practically everybody but the farmer. Um, So I kind of stood back in the wake of, you know, looking at my fields, which had been, you know, sprayed with herbicide. Now they were dead. These were perennial pastures, um, you know, which were, you know, very sustainable. Um, And I had dead fields I had $18 in the pocket, And I was just about ready to tear it up into a million pieces and and blow it into the wind and and go get a haircut and and a pair of khakis and a real job. Uh, But instead, what we did was we rebooted the farm entirely. Uh, We went in the direction of organic, diversified livestock, uh, raising uh, hundreds of head of cattle and sheep, uh, completely grass-fed and finished on pasture, uh, rebuilding our soils uh, through through uh, carbon sequestration, rotational grazing, uh, trampling of pastures, animal manures, and then uh, using uh, pigs and chickens uh, as omnivores to um, help accentuate that um, cycle of sustainability. And I make a full-time living now. We have 12 full-time salaries on our farm, and we sell farmers markets in the Washington, D.C. area uh, year-round. And that's our story.
0: Right. So, so just, I just want to clarify one thing. When you, when you first were, when you first tried going the more conventional route and did you end up trying out GMO seed in that process or were you still using? um, Yeah. Yeah, you did. Okay.
1: Um, Yeah. That's that first year. Those were, that was definitely, I couldn't say the exact variety. Um, I believe it was pioneer at the time which later got bought out. Um, but yeah, it was in the, it was in the wake of, of, uh, of the GMO seed that was linked either with Roundup or some glyphosate product, um, I don't think the patent had expired on Roundup at that point, so it probably was. Um, it probably was that variety.
0: Right. Okay. Well, thank you, Forrest. I just wanted you to tell that story, just to just to uh, because I knew it just demonstrates that you've tried it. <laughs> you know, you've been there and you've um, you've radically changed how you farm, um, and are now yeah. a, a huge advocate of uh, sustainable practices, organic practices, that sort of thing. Um, so back, just back, back to your article, um, and some of the points you were making. So, so for us, one thing that, or, or what your article is really focused on is, is how those of us who, who are opposed to GMOs and to, into, I guess, industrial agriculture, um, w- with regards to GMOs, we, we tend to focus on, on, uh, as we already discussed, uh, that just the fact that it exists and fighting against that, in, in which case you've made the point, well, we're, we're kind of, it's, we're kind of late for that. It's, it's kind of here and here to stay. But in your, in your article uh, for if I'm reading it right, you suggest that, that in your view, we should be focusing more on, on other potential problems with GMOs. And, and you really focus on, on just the, uh, um, the scorched earth approach to, to yeah. the main, yeah. the main GMO crops, which are, you know, um, Roundup ready soybeans and Roundup ready corn, et cetera. And, and what that really means. Yeah. And you use some really interesting satellite images to, to make your point, which is that um, yeah. Prior prior to these fields being planted, I mean, we are dumping massive amounts of glyph- uh, glyphosate on on these fields and just and yeah. just killing everything in the farming ecosystem.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it's it's a it's a complicated, comprehensive question. You know, it starts as basic as the soil and goes all the way through through human health. So it's it's like you know, if we talk about this for five hours, five days, you know, uh, sure we could. So the the point of, uh, uh, that I was trying to make with that is if we get up at about 35,000 feet every April, May, June, we can look down and see uh, fields, uh, earth, that should be green. Uh, you know, um, nature volunteers. Uh, something called spring. When trees bud with leaves and flowers begin to bloom and, and the birds and the bees and all these wonderful things, but we can look down um, or from the ground and see that uh, it's, it's brown, it's been killed off. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, organic or, uh, you know, other more mainstream forms of agriculture don't also incorporate things like tillage and, uh, and, and you know, uh, rotational plantings and things like that. But uh, what's happening uh, with the use of, of glyphosate and other comparable herbicides is we're not just killing off that vegetation, uh, we're killing off, uh, you know, soil microbe life, we're killing off uh, desirable, necessary uh, funguses and bacteria, which promote, you know, it's like the canary in the coal mine kind of thing. Like, these are indicators of healthy, balanced ecosystems. And if we look at this stuff under a microscope, you know, I don't want to get too, um, too scientific about this stuff, but all these things are building blocks. It's like, the, you know, the corner of a house. You don't just go up to the you know the corner of your house and yank out one you know one fourth of it and then pretend like nothing happened, right? You're going to notice the breeze, <laughs> you know, right. foundation of your house is missing. That's that's exactly what's happening when we're doing this stuff. We're applying these chemicals and we might not see all the dramatic consequences um, long term. And the other kind of corollary to all this is, again, when we're driving along through you know. 10,000 miles of cornfields uh, or, you know, looking looking down and seeing all this green, uh, it's not the true picture. If you imagine a piece of, let's just imagine like a, uh, you know, piece of grass paper and put a little dot right in the center, well, the rest of the earth around that is, is barren. Uh, it's, just a, it's, just, it's just a little one square inch of corn and one square foot of dirt. Mm. Okay. Um, and if you want to take a look at this, you can go to my website, com. I've got a photo of that around right the website right now of kind of how dramatic it is. So I think it's really easy to kind of get the illusion that we're creating life, but it's it's like 99% death. <laughs> and I mean, not, not to be like, you know, too hyperbolic about it. I'm just trying to be factual. But it's, um, it's interesting when you go off the ground in the spring. And, yeah, go ahead.
0: Well, it's just when you get to talking about that, though, I think other farmers immediately uh, can infer what you're implying. You know, what's what's bad about that? But but do you think most non-farmers, just in hearing those facts, like just just about the barrenness of everything around the corn, do, are they are they going to be able to infer what what you're implying is wrong with that? Or do they, do you, do you think we need to go deeper in explaining what might be wrong with a field that? that is completely barren except for these millions of stocks of corn, say.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's go, let's go deeper with that. Uh, who lives out in the desert. Okay. Like, uh, what's our most iconic form of, of, uh, of desolation, you know, a, a picture of man walking through the desert, you know, <laughs> uh, 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 you know, uh, with buzzards circling over his head. Right. And for all intents and purposes, that is what, uh, we've created uh, with this modern a- uh, agricultural food landscape is is essentially a desert with uh, you know an occasional uh, stalk of corn you know probably comprising about two percent you know maybe five percent out of hundred percent of a square foot uh, uh, with a you go up the stalk of corn and you've got a couple of kernels of grain that are then going to be turned into uh, not even human food. Right, they're mm-hmm. going to be turned primarily into ethanol, or converted into chicken, beef, or pork. Not at the rate of one pound of grain to one pound of chicken, but two, three, as much as seven pounds of grain to make one pound of chicken, pork, or beef, respectively. And like, what are we accomplishing? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that would that'd be the way I'd explain it to to a customer or consumer, um, as opposed to a sustainable perennial. Uh, landscape uh, where we're not only fixing things like, uh, uh, you know, soil health, taking carbon straight out of the air, putting it down the ground, but we're actually growing diversified nutritious food mm-hmm. and our farmers are making a living from it.
0: Cause I, 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 this is like the reason I, I, um, I really, I, I liked your article and I it made me think for us was just because Okay. First of all, I'll just jump back to the safety of the GMOs themselves, not 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 the caloric content, not the nutritional content, just the just the, yeah. the safety. I don't personally. I don't expect we're going to, thirty years from now, re- realize that oh, you know, the naysayers were right and that GMOs are actually bad for us. I think the science seems like it's pretty settled, and I'm just that's 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 my view, um, and I yeah, yeah. I just worry, and I think you. It seemed like you were implying. You know, this is well in your article that we, as as the group of people that are devoted to um, challenging the mainstream system, especially with regards to GMOs, um, are really focused on the, or, you know, whether whether GMOs themselves are dangerous to human health, um, and mm-hmm. and also therefore the the labeling issue, and I think your article. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm suggest well you know there's 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 other re- really important reasons to be concerned about gmos just 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 the just the industrial system that they reflect i guess and what that means for our ecosystems yeah, and all the rest and 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 ultimately human nutrition because of yeah. the empty calories that end up being produced the mass quantity that doesn't necessarily reflect quality and so i i guess i'm just wondering my own view is is that we need to focus on that more and that most farmers i think when they think about these issues and that's what they're more concerned about. Cause they're, they're more versed in this stuff. Um, I'm wondering if it matters. Does it ultimately matter what is spurring a, a non-farmer um, to fight against GMOs? Does it matter that they're completely focused on the safety and the labeling rather than the ecosystem effects or the, the intellectual property effects or some of these other, in my Opinion more valid concerns.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I, I hear you loud and clear. It's it's a complicated question. I would say that knowledge is is empowering. Um, you know, the more we know about our food system, the more we're able to affect uh, changes uh, that we want. I think it has a cumulative effect of not only you know consumers who are you know, now at this point, multi-generationally removed from the actual physical act of farming, um, to get them more understanding about the complexities, um, about the way our food system has evolved, and to create positive peer pressure from an economic standpoint, um, to, you know, to influence uh, agricultural change.
0: Okay, so so I'm just gonna I'm gonna. Um... Change tax here for us. Um, you've written a lot about farmers market culture, um, and and mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say that that farmers markets, the way they tend to be structured in North America, tend to be filled out by farmers who tend to be engaged in more sustainable practices. Um, so, is that fair to say? I, I better ask you that. Yeah,
1: that's that's inco- that's entirely possible. I don't know that.
0: To be a
1: fact um, okay well let me let, be... let me just
0: create a hypothetical that is not that far-fetched sure. let's say that you have a farmers' market that is almost entirely composed of organic vendors um, which yeah. which my farmers market that I attend with my farm is is more or less that's that's the case um, I sure. I see a lot of my colleagues taking advantage of people's concerns and fears around GMOs by by specifically advertising no GMOs on you know on their table, mm-hmm. um, and I, part of me feels it's a little bit irresponsible because I mean for mm-hmm. example what I try and do when a customer comes up I get customers coming up all the time and asking if 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 my stuff has GMOs and an easy one is just to say well my stuff's organic and so it's not allowed to have GMOs so don't worry but mm-hmm. I, I I try and go further and say look at this farmer's market that features farmers growing mostly vegetables and whatever other stuff you know you are very very unlikely to encounter a gmo anywhere at a farmers market. right. and then if i have time i'll say look these are the main crops that contain that are gmos and and so if you really think about it uh, unless you're talking about some non-organic meat at this market you're not likely to encounter it and 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 whatever. i'm what i'm getting at is yeah. i feel like we have a responsibility to t- t- take it a bit further in those conversations and and point that stuff out and I think there's just a potential conflict of interest because, as you pointed out before, we're all profit-seeking and there's nothing wrong with that. And I'm just wondering if you think we have a responsibility or if it's not our problem.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I think, uh, again, that's um, that's probably going to be a case-by-case basis. Um, I think that farmer's markets are the ideal place to go to ask questions. Um, so if we want to have that deeper conversation or if we find someone that's promoting that, we want to question them. About that, that's that's where you go. I mean, that's one of the greatest benefits of going to a farmer's market. You mm-hmm. get to know your producer, have these conversations, uh, promote education, transparency, uh, coming and going. Um, to wit, you know, on the flip side of that coin, um, for many years, uh, like it's, there's chicken commercials that were everywhere saying, you know, our chicken is, uh, uh, doesn't have uh, any, uh, no added hormones. You know, we saw that for like 10 years. Well, chickens never were given hormones. You know, it's like saying like uh, our chickens uh, don't drive Mercedes-Benzes. You know, I mean, what's yeah. the point of saying that? Um, it is it, irrelevant. But that was something on the other side of the coin that um, they we're trying to, you know, kind of create a fictional, a fictitious uh, pushback um, to to say something that had no bearing on the product anyway. Uh, to say, you know, the chickens were raised outdoors, the chickens weren't raised with antibiotics or something like that—that would not relevant, But you know, to say they weren't raised with hormones that was a moot point because they weren't. No chickens are given hormones. At the same, you know, on the same token, we see some of that, you know, that that uh, pushback against non-GMOs, where that's probably a moot point, exactly like you pointed out when it comes to vegetables. So, you know, I think, you know, that that needs to be called out certainly on both sides, um, and and maybe sometimes it's done with good intentions. Um, So yeah, definitely a conversation to be having.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, I just. It's why I was grateful for your article and, and that it was published in, in a mainstream publication like, like HuffPo. Um, I just, I think, I, I think we need to do our best to stop stoking fears, um, and, mm-hmm. and try yeah. and get the average eater's understanding of some of the other problems with GMOs, uh, you know, Go go a little deeper with people, and and um, I think it could start with with not stoking those fears by putting giant signs up on the market stall that say no GMOs when there's probably no GMO anywhere in that market, <laughs> you know. Yeah, uh, but I agree. you know, and mm.
1: you know, we've got entire you know fear, fear, and uh, anxiety, and and uh, anger are certainly uh, you know our lower human emotions, and I think everyone would agree with that. And yet we have entire, you know, media and uh, you know, news and news and media uh, outlets that are precisely set up to, uh, you know, to stoke uh, fear and anger and, and confusion and suspicion and all these things. So, um, you know, what are you going to do? What are you going to do <laughs> with, with all that um, at the end of the day, except try to enact enact positive change? and. You know, more than anything, I think that's what I was trying to do um, with this with this article was just to kind of point out, hey, we can see this; it's right around us. We can look out our windows uh, at ground level. We can look out our windows uh, from an airplane airplane seat, and and begin to ask questions that you know maybe not more important than than uh, the nutrition and the labeling, but at least equally important. You know what does this? What effect does this have on our ecology? Uh, you know what effect does this have on from a global standpoint?
0: So, well, Forrest, before we uh, say goodbye, I just want to ask you about your your new book. Um, your your the book you're really well known for is is gaining ground. A story of farmers' markets, local food, and saving the family farm, and that was a bestseller. And I'm sure this new one is is on its way to becoming one. Uh, it's it's called uh, Growing Tomorrow Behind the Scenes with 18 Extraordinary sustainable farmers. Um, so yeah I thought you you could tell us about it and first of all I'll say it must have been a fun book to, to research.
1: Oh man so as a full-time farmer I, I just rarely ever got to travel uh, you know more than more than uh, just a couple hours in any direction. so so last summer I, I played some intentional hookie and, and flew around the country on a long deferred vacation. Um, you know, still doing farmer markets on the weekends, but flying to a bunch of farms all over the country a very different farms, multi-generational, uh, different faces, different ages—all, um, all frankly, growing very different types of food from from all corners of America. Yeah, it was it was a labor of love, and I think it shines through on the pages.
0: Do you do you want to quickly talk about one of the farmers you
1: you profiled in, in the yeah. book? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So. Uh, Truly, it's, you know, the book ranges from Cape Cod to Santa Fe to the Puget Sound all the way down to, you know, Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, such a, so many uh, fascinating farms. One of my favorite stories is uh, some urban beekeepers in downtown Dallas. You know, when we think about farmers, we think about probably, you know, the traditional red barn on the hill and, and, uh, you know, 100 acres of vegetables or or cows and chickens in the distance. Uh, But we don't think about downtown uh, urban urban landscapes and a really neat couple, Brandon and Susan Pollard in downtown Dallas now for well over a decade have been putting out urban beehives onto rooftops, onto hotels, onto uh, local businesses and raising what's called zip code honey. Uh, we know, you know, for a fact that bees, uh, honey bees range about three to five miles. So they're putting bees in downtown Dallas and they, they, act, the bees, can, you know, just physically don't go beyond the city limits. So we know that all the honey that they're creating is being harvested through, you know, band uh, growing in sidewalk cracks, uh, flower boxes on windowsills, uh, things of that nature. Um, so not only, it, you know, are they growing food in the mm. middle of Dallas, Texas, which is crazy enough, um, but, the uh, you know, these animals are, are actually harvesting uh, you know, the, the wild forage, uh, through negligent, you know, things we don't, things we don't even think about as we go about our day. So, you know, just stories like that. It's just, just incredible, incredible, uh, hopeful stories that are, that are happening all around us.
0: So, so where can people find the book
1: Forrest? Oh, uh, where, uh, wherever books are sold. So <laughs> yeah, um, you, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it should be at uh, almost every local bookstore around the country. Uh, certainly Barnes and Noble and, uh, if you are uh, 100 miles from your local bookstore, you can just go on Amazon and, uh, and grab it there. So, uh, yeah, um, it's everywhere.
0: Well, Forrest Pritchard, thanks very much for, for taking the time to come on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah,
1: my pleasure. And thanks for the good work of you.
0: All right. That's it, folks. So, look, before I say goodbye, please put your thinking caps on and think about an insight you could share with me to share on the podcast. It would really help me out because generating new episode content is challenging, and because I can't and we can't keep relying on Scott Humphreys and Dan Brisbois to carry the rest of us along in terms of content generation. So uh, please get a hold of me. It it'll only take a moment or two, and I'll do all the rest. I'll get a hold of you, rig up the recording equipment, and and we'll we'll get something on tape that I'm sure your fellow listeners would love to hear right editor the at the ruminant.ca that's where you can email me to get the whole process started thanks and have a great week into this world of and live life like it was meant to be Cause why would we live in a place that don't want us a place that is trying to bleed us dry We could be happy with life in the country Thinking some real soul searching And here's my final resolve I don't need a big old house or some fancy car To keep my love going strong So we'll run right out into the wilds and graces We'll keep close quarters with gentle faces And live next door to the birds and the bees And live life like it was meant to be Morning, officers. What y'all, the second team?
1: We're the first team. Yeah, we're not going to fall for a banana in the tailpipe. You're not going to fall for the banana in the tailpipe?
0: (laughs) It should be more natural, brother. It should flow out like this. Look, man, I ain't falling for no banana in my tailpipe. See, that's more natural for us. You've been hanging out with this dude too long.